0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today, we are going to be talking about something that's been heavily in the news recently, which is uh, new restrictions on abortion, Uh, specifically those restrictions on abortion that target abortion done after prenatal diagnosis. I think that there's a, If you're out there looking at these headlines and thinking, wait, they can't do that, right? They can't do that, then you're probably in decent company. I think that many people, particularly in this field, are, are feeling that way. Um, and the answer is, it's no longer so clear that they can't do that. Um, so let's just start this conversation with a little bit of, of history, because since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was um, decided by the Supreme Court. There's been an enormous amount of change in how abortion is treated by the law. Um, and interestingly, all of this change has taken place across a backdrop of very little change in how Americans feel about abortion. Little blips. But basically, most people... In America, then and most people in America now think that at least situationally, abortion should be permitted. And this incredible increase in the restrictions on abortion has happened absence any major change in public opinion. And what's happening right now is, I think, interestingly, not just an attempt to restrict abortion, but an attempt to affect hearts and minds, an effect to to to, Go out front and lead towards a change in how people view abortion in the context of prenatal diagnosis. Something that we should be extremely aware of and has the potential to impact our field um, in terms of prenatal genetics right at the heart of practice. So, Roe v. Wade in 1973, as probably everybody listening knows, said that no state could make a restriction making it impossible for a woman to have abortion um, prior to the end of the second trimester, 24 weeks, which was tied to this idea of viability. So the idea was at the point of viability, the competing rights and interests of the state and the individual and so on uh, shifted. And at that point, the state could, should it choose to do so, and these are all restrictions on state laws, but they don't actually tell the states what they can do. Um, at that point, states had the option of making laws that restricted abortion. And uh, there's been a lot of Supreme Court cases that have looked at this again, but probably the single most influential one up till right now is Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. And basically what Casey brought into the picture was the idea that there were Caveats that even though, okay, in general, you cannot create uh, restrictions on abortion. You can't make it illegal prior to uh, viability. You can, if it doesn't place an undue burden, and that was the standard that was created by Casey on the woman, you can create all sorts of uh, obstacles that impede access that have various justifications. So that's where we bring in the waiting limits and the script laws, and you have to have a an ultrasound and you have to, um, minors can need parental consent, all this sort of special restrictions on abortion. And they've, they've simply multiplied like mushrooms after the rain since then. And now at a very key moment for abortion rights, the Supreme Court has agreed that later this year we'll hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which is a case in Mississippi where they passed a law saying that no abortion can be done after 15 weeks. So obviously that completely jettisons the viability standard, jettisons the idea of trimester system, which we could have got rid of a while ago. What will Jackson mean? Well, we don't know because it's not decided, but there's three basic options. One is that there's no change. It's very, very unlikely that there's no change. Why? One, because we know that the Supreme Court now has a majority of justices who... Do not favor abortion rights, who believe that abortion should be illegal. Also, why did they take the case? If they were just going to keep things as they would, they would just simply not de- decline to take the case. Obviously, under Roe, this law can't stand. So the fact that they're listening to it means that at, at least a, pl- uh, a majority of the justices said, we're open to changing the way we do business here. So that's unlikely. The other is that they overturn Roe and they simply say, Roe is a standard. It's gone. It was it was Uh, was what we lived with for a long time, but we don't believe that now. And at that point, states would be free to uh, create whatever obstacles to abortion that they chose, including simply banning it outright. And there are a number of states, I believe it's 11 now, where there are laws already on the books that say the minute roe has gone, these laws come into effect. So there would be a bunch of states where that would happen instantly and a bunch of states where it would take five more minutes. And the other possibility is they don't jettison role well entirely, but they allow this law in and create sort of a new standard that would allow states to limit abortion, but perhaps not completely. And that might be a sort of a more politicky thing for the Supreme Court to do because that might sort of dim the backlash, uh, that they anticipate. Now, keep in mind, a little different than what we're talking about here is that, uh, Jackson uh, Dodgey Jackson actually has an exception for health emergencies or for fetal abnormalities. So that law passed in Mississippi, as it stands, actually says that in the case of a fetal abnormality not well defined, a woman could have an abortion. Although good luck actually getting an abortion in Mississippi once they've shut down all the abortion centers. But that sentiment, that idea that this that this is a, an exception. And like there's other exceptions, exceptions for the, the life of the mother, you have to do an abortion if the mother's life is, is threatened and so on. Some, some some laws have exceptions for incest or, or rape. But that's not a universal sentiment. And in fact, I would make the argument that there's very clear evidence that the anti-abortion movement, and it is like a very well-organized movement and often 10 steps ahead of the pro-reproductive rights movement, is focused on prenatal diagnosis, is actively targeting prenatal diagnosis. I'm going to go into that a little bit. So in 2012, I'm, I'm, I'm macabrely proud of this. Uh, it's a bad way to be right. But in 2012, in the DNA exchange post about what were the top 10 stories of 2012, I picked out Rick Santorum attacking the American Care Act, Obamacare, in 2012, saying that insurance companies should not be required to cover prenatal testing because tests like amniocentesis, he said, lead to abortion more often than not. Now, of, of, of course, that's a misstatement sort of on the face of it, because amniocentesis leads to reassurance more often than not. But the point of what he was saying was that the utility of amniocentesis is abortion, and therefore uh, insurance companies should not be allowed to should not be forced to pay for it. It's a very important statement and immediately unsettling in its indication of of how focused they were on this idea of abortion post-prenatal diagnosis to be able to tar it as eugenic and particularly pernicious form of abortion. So I thought, I'll be honest with you, that they were going to do it through the money, that they were going to start an attack on, and I still think this is probably true, on, uh, pressure insurance companies not to pay for prenatal diagnosis, not to pay for prenatal testing. But in fact, what happened a year later, just one year later, was North Dakota passed the very first of what they call the reason bans. Uh, the reason bans say a woman can't, could, could have an abortion normally, but if her reason is that there's something wrong with the fetus based on a di- genetic diagnosis, then she can't have the abortion if that's their motivation. Uh, probably you're thinking this is very hard to prosecute. Why? yes, it is. And yet it has an enormously chilling effect on abortion in general. And versions of these uh, now exist in 11 states. Why do we think that this is identifying fetal diagnosis as an area that they can make inroads like I said, this battle for hearts and minds. Well, and and why does it matter? Well, I mean, abortion is likely to become more restricted in all of these states anyway. And if it's completely not legal, also abortion after prenatal diagnosis is not legal. Uh, but in fact, a successful campaign to convince people that these are particularly evil abortions or these are terrible, immoral decisions. Is clearly terribly stigmatizing to individuals who choose termination, and for these reasons, if they are successful in convincing a lot of people that this is a this is a this is a, a, a wrong choice or something that we um, look down on, it's actually I believe going to affect people in all 50 states and not just in those states where they pass, which is bad enough. Uh, so it's interesting, actually, are the public with them? The public, uh, they're not really with them. The the, the public, when there's a number, multiple, multiple polls have been done and so on. And whenever you poll, this is an example of a Gallup poll. So a Gallup poll about abortion this year, I think it was last year. And this was about abortion in the third trimester. And they said, what if a woman doesn't want a child for any reason? 20 percent support abortion in the third trimester? Um, What if there's a life-threatening illness, is the way they put it, in the fetus, and they said 48% support abortion? So more than double the number of people support abortion in the situation where there is uh, a health issue with the fetus. So interestingly, that number goes down to 29% if you say specifically, what if it's Down syndrome? And so notably, I, I think in terms of, and this is, this is something we should be aware of and be thinking about, notably, when you say, should they be allowed to do an abortion for Down syndrome, you are literally putting a face on that condition. People again get very uneasy with it. And the people writing these laws absolutely knew them, which is why the very first reason ban in North Dakota said You um, should not be able to get an abortion for a genetic abnormality. And the second one, which was in Ohio in 2015, prohibits abortion if the child has Down syndrome. So it specifically raises the issue of Down syndrome. Both of these bans, right, very hard to enforce, but, but they make a giant statement. And there's a reason why they switched from genetic abnormality to Down syndrome, Is they are actually trying to tap into people's discomfort with these abortions. And the words Down syndrome do that much more effectively than the words genetic abnormality. Uh, So where are we right now? Well, two things happened in the last, I think, about six weeks. One is that that law in Ohio, like almost all the other laws, was challenged and enjoined. The law did not go into effect While the legal challenge was playing itself out, which was the court's way of saying, we think this law is going to get tossed out on its ear, so we're not going to create the problem of putting the law into effect and then taking it out of effect. So we'll just wait. And this came up in front of a federal appeals bench, and the judges there, a panel of judges, said, you know what, maybe it will, maybe it will be upheld, this law. So we're going to allow it to go into effect. That was very different. That has that, that says two things. One is that says something about where those judges think the Supreme Court is on this issue. That suddenly it doesn't seem so unrealistic that this law will be allowed to go into effect. And number two, it means that at the federal appeals level, we have a difference in opinion in t- appeals courts that have, list, have, have heard similar cases, which means it's very likely to end up at the Supreme Court. So. That changes things. Another little snippet I'll add in is that the latest of these laws passed was in Arizona, and the change in the draconianness of the laws changed is is very apparent. If you look at the North Dakota law, it's a misdemeanor. Again, these only penalize the doctor; they don't penalize the woman. And believe me, that's another thing that's been focus grouped. It's not popular to penalize the woman, so you penalize the doctor. In North Dakota, it was a misdemeanor. In Arizona, it was, it's a, in Ohio, it was a felony. In Arizona, it's a felony with loss of license. Plus, plus, in the Arizona law, there's a $15,000 fine if you are a medical provider who knows about one of these abortions taking place and doesn't turn them in. Uh, so that speaks very directly to genetic counselors and it puts an Arizona genetic counselor in the position of if a patient says to her, can you help me at a termination? He or she is in uncomfortable territory. Um, so I want to think more about these issues uh, and, and how they can affect prenatal counseling. And if you're distressed about this um, in which case, you're probably a majority of genetic counselors in uh, in the same In the same boat, uh, what we can do. And I asked today uh, Jordan Brown to come and join me. Jordan is an assistant professor uh, at the Division of Human Genetics and the Division of Bioethics at The Ohio State University. Her primary areas of interest include bioethical issues in genetic counseling and access to reproductive healthcare throughout the lifespan. And she is the current vice chair of the Public Policy Committee and on the committee for, I think they called it reproductive justice that NSGC just set up. And Jordan, I met because when the Ohio law went into effect, um, Jordan reached out to me to discuss writing a blog post for the DNA exchange on um, this subject and the field and NSGC. And this blog post got an enormous amount of reaction, tons of comments. You should go and take a look at it on the DNA exchange. It, um, it's great. It's um, Jordan, it's terrific. Bring you into the conversation here.
1: <laughs> hi, Jordan. Um, hi, Welcome Laura. to The Beagle. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad to be here. Um, so, and thank you so for I've that summary. That it. was great. Oh, well, thank you.
0: So, Jordan, tell me a little
1: bit about what inspired you
0: to write the blog post and what your goals were.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as you said, I'm currently the vice chair for the Public Policy Committee and um, the reproductive freedom position statement had come up multiple times in my time with the Public Policy Committee. Um, and it came up earlier this year prior to the Ohio and Arizona laws um and we had a discussion as a committee and we had some challenging conversations about this um and we kind of left it with nowhere to go um so just kind of historically this has been a statement that's been tabled um indefinitely um because it is such a political quote quote unquote political issue um But it was also clear that many members of the PPC, including myself, had very strong opinions about um, this topic. Uh, So I was asked to write a piece actually for NSGC Perspectives about how to be an advocate um, outside of NSGC for this issue. And that's kind of where where this article started.
0: And that didn't end up in Perspectives?
1: It did not end up in Perspectives. Um, I I, mean, I would be, I knew while I was writing it, it was probably not what GC <laughs> was looking for to, to go in Perspectives. Um, but I felt like it, it was something that needed to be said. And um, it felt disingenuine to write um, an, an article about Telling people to be individual advocates when we have a lot of power as a group um, and and we have a chance as an organization to make an impact on this issue and we're not we're not using that. So um, that's where, you know, I kind of made the decision to just go for it, knowing that it would likely not be what they anticipated. Um and, yeah, obviously it did not end up in perspectives and ended up on the DNA exchange.
0: Yeah. So this is an an, an old issue here. And and let's just be clear. The the organization NSGC um, has for a decade, because I first brought this up in 2012 when the Rick Santorum quote said I I, I wrote them and I'm like, oh, I think we should uh, take a stand on this, guys. This seems pretty fundamental. And I got back a note saying, like, look, We really don't like to be highly visible on issues that involve abortion Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because it attracts. Then then we we are labeled as abortion advocates uh, and we need the support of people in Congress uh, for the and, and in state legislatures for the licensure bills and for the federal bill. Um, that will make it easier for genetic counselors to earn a living and so on. So that's a very important, that's a very important piece of their job. Um, so I, I get that. I, I, I am, by the way, the, I, I suppose the, the chair of the task force that wrote the latest tabled version of a reproductive rights statement at the request of NSGC. So we spent months right. on it and then they said, it's good. We're not putting this out there. And I have to tell you, I thought it was a little funny because the idea that the press is paying so much attention to the NSGC p- position statements on the website struck yeah. me as a little amusing. I mean, we have already a reproductive rights statement on our website. It was a matter of like, as though changing it was going to draw all this press opinion, which I guarantee you. And sadly, Sadly, it does not. <laughs> Just a lot of experience with our position statements, and none of them really draw the, so much attention from the press. But in a bigger way, they didn't want to be quoted in the media. They didn't want to be out front. And uh, I've felt for many years that NSGC has identified reproductive rights as sort of something that many of their members feel strongly about, but that isn't fundamental to GC practice um, and therefore isn't kind of their job. And Maybe some of the NSGC executives would speak a little bit differently about that, but they have certainly looked at us like, look, it's fundamental to our job as an organization to get these bills passed, and therefore we can't do anything to endanger that. I do think there's been some shift in that in the last, I would say, months, really weeks, and I think you will find other professional organizations reacting too, because frankly, felony, loss of license, $15,000 fine, et cetera, et cetera. These are also pretty fundamental to people's practice. So it, it, it does become an existential issue for those of us that work in the prenatal counseling field and live in any of the 22 or 23 states that will end up with a variety of abortion restrictions.
1: Yeah. And How Laura, you- we had a meeting earlier this year as the PBC with, we actually met with a member of Capital Council who um, does some of the lobbying for NSGC to to give us some more perspective on why this is something that, why abortion is something NSGC doesn't seem to want to touch with a 10-foot pole. Um, and the response was right in line with what you were saying. It was that it's okay to be passionate about this, which my response would be I don't really need you to care about. Um, And but that we we don't want to put a target on our back um, was actually the language that was used. Um, We don't want to put a target on our back by making a statement about abortion because it is such a political issue and because everything can be can be tied back to it. it's such an emotional issue and you got that to that earlier when you were saying that you know a lot of the rhetoric is aimed at people's hearts um and you know why would we want to get involved with this is kind of that was the message that was sent
0: yes I I think we have been incredibly hesitant as a group and I think that that is understandable but there's also sort of a meta way where if you look at it oh We've been backpedaling on abortion for 30 years. Not we NSGC, we people in this country who fundamentally believe that a woman should have available the right to choose. And things have been said. <laughs> That's a very passive voice. We say things like, which I don't think are wrong, but are problematic. Like, yes, abortion is bad, but like, yes, abortion Yes, I understand why you're upset. Yes, I understand. And that feels like a, an effective way to respond. Like, look, we're, we're, we're meeting you halfway. We understand it's, it's troubling. It's problematic. But in fact, people have ended up so far back on their heels. The given is that it's problematic. And we don't want to go down that road, I think. With abortion following the diagnosis of a medical problem in a fetus. Because we've already seen how playing defense in that way uh, ends up with, you know, getting backed up and backed up and you're sort of, sort of like left protecting a smaller and smaller corner, which is kind of where we are right now. Like, okay, but, but, but some access to abortion. There has to be some access to abortion. But also it's, cruel to people who make that decision, to whom we support, or, or, or many of us, I I, I would hope we feel supportive. Like, it's, it's the message to those people is pretty terrible.
1: Like, yeah, yeah, and you know, I really, getting back, you brought this up before, but some of the language that's been used justifying not being more outspoken as a profession, as an organization on issues related to abortion is that genetic counselors don't have a unique perspective on this, um, that, you know, it's a larger social issue and it's not something that we bring, you know, some profound insight to the table, um. And I really struggle with that <laughs> because, one, I think we do bring a um, unique perspective on this issue. And then what, you know, we have state and position statements on human cloning, which I mean, I would argue maybe genetic counselors don't have a unique perspective on necessarily. A lot <laughs> well, of people right. agree about it. I wrote that, but you're, <laughs> right.
0: you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. And uh, listen, I can tell you, I have a looked at it, the state's case they made to the Ohio Appeals Court, this isn't exactly how it was decided, but the court case this state was making, if you want a preview of what the cases for these laws will look like, was they said there were three reasons why this law should be allowed to go into effect. One is it protects individuals with Down syndrome. And that's an it's an interesting thing. And I think we should actually talk a little bit about how closely tied prenatal testing is to Down syndrome. And I personally think that is a, a problem. But number one, and they said it, it's the now. So as genetic counselor. I've had the experience to work with a lot of families with Down syndrome, and I've studied polling of parents with Down syndrome, and a majority of parents with Down syndrome consistently support the right to prenatal testing, in fact. That doesn't mean that they all don't want their kid with Down syndrome. That doesn't mean that at all. But whether it's for preparedness or knowledge or just understanding as a group who have a special needs child, that maybe some people are not in a position to handle that in their lives, whatever these sets of reasons are, and those are all things that have been taken from things that were talked about by parents with Down syndrome, they're more interested in making sure that when the diagnosis is made prenatally, people are given fair and balanced information on Mm -hmm. what Down syndrome is like than in blocking access to to prenatal testing at all. Um, At least Mm -hmm. that's been my experience as a genetic counselor With these families and these ad and 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 advocates, Um, number two reason they said is that it would be sort of bring shame on the profession of doctors if they were known to do these sorts of abortions. I'm sort of just lay that out there of how incredibly stigmatizing and what a terrible thing that is to say, saying that 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 doing this would would make doctors, the public would lose trust in doctors. That is a really different point of view. So I think genetic counselors actually do have something to say there um, and can speak for all of those people who would lose trust in their doctors if they knew that their doctors and their genetic counselors were required to not tell them what what choices they have and not be honest with them and to deny them access. Um, And three... Very specifically, if you hear something in the background here, there's thunder and lightning happening here and intense. Three, the state of Ohio said. That if they allow abortions to happen after a diagnosis of Down syndrome, families will find themselves pressured by medical professionals into having those abortions. So that answers that speaks so directly to what you're just saying, Jordan, where it's like. Who has a better perspective on being able to say whether or not that's true than genetic right. counsel? Um, yeah, And if we don't answer that in court in the form of an amicus brief, we're saying that's not going to happen. That shouldn't happen. You don't need to pass a law forbidding abortion to make sure that your medical professionals don't pressure people into having abortion need to work with your medical professionals to make sure that doesn't happen. And we as a profession are, are very committed. I know it's not perfect. I, I know people can, can call up and tell me stories about people that have been pressured about having abortions after and, or questioned and questioned till it felt like pressure. But I would say that as someone, we both work in training programs, and no one would ever teach a genetic counselor to respond that way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think this, it gets at one of the most unfortunately useful arguments is pitting, you know, abortion rights and abortion advocacy against disability rights and advocacy. Um, when really the two are inherently tied and, you know, a lot of abortion and reproductive rights advocacy is extremely inclusive and intersects profoundly with the disability rights group. But what I think a lot of these laws and a lot of the dialogue and rhetoric around these pieces of legislation and just abortion rights in general is, is that, you know, it's directly in opposition to disability rights. Um, and that's kind of where I think this, these laws Specifically about Down syndrome, and here in Ohio, you know, that's in place now. They get at that because Down syndrome is something that people know about. It's something that, um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that diagnosis. And um, by using that language, they're able to, you know, to get at people's heartstrings um, and to make it an emotional game rather than one based on facts. Yes.
0: Uh, I mean, I think your point that it creates a false, a simplistic division, right? Between right. abortion rights and disability rights. Whereas step one step back, folks, just step one step back. If we make it illegal in Ohio to have an abortion following a diagnosis of Down syndrome, does it not happen? Does it not happen? Of course it still happens. How does it happen? It means that everybody who can afford a goddamn plane ticket and has the internet savvy to Google abortion centers in New York and can take three days off from work and can play for a hotel room, all of these ands ands, which is a lot of people, right? Um, Right. They have the same access they've ever had to abortion, just takes a few more clicks and a few days. And so what happens over time? And it's not just about abortion. It's about all sorts of genetic disease. But just talk. Sorry, it's not just about Down syndrome, but just look at Down syndrome. It's already happening. It's already happening. What happens over time is that Down syndrome starts to be something that only occurs or occurs much more frequently in communities that don't have access to get on that plane, to to, to to get a hotel, to take three days off from work that don't have the social support, that don't have the financial supports. And what could possibly be worse for families uh, of individuals with Down syndrome and those individuals themselves than to suddenly be the thing that only happens in those communities? How much easier it is to stigmatize them and to not give them services? if it's not something to which everybody is equally, it, 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 it's just that it sounds good on the surface, like, oh, we really care about these people, but go one inch deep. And you're setting up a situation of making life much, much harder for those communities. Yeah. So, but it's not a sound bite. It took, it took me what? It took me two minutes to make that explanation, not 30 seconds. and And that's the difference between Uh, getting it across and not getting it across in in a lot of situations. So I want to turn to your, to your really interesting blog post and, and um, you got a lot of reaction to that. Well, most of it was positive, right? Yeah. And you you were making the fundamental point. I want you to make it, but the fundamental point that it has something to do with our, our sort of character as genetic counselors.
1: Yeah. And I think this is, probably become more apparent to me as i've become more and more involved in nsgc um this idea of having to make nice um and um having to put on you know the face that doesn't that 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 doesn't get into conflict (laughs) or that there aren't arguments um or that there's not these aren't hard conversations um or that we'd rather you know make a statement about something that doesn't carry with it all this political weight that abortion does. But I I think that is, you know, that that's far beyond just issues related to abortion. I think that's just, you know, common in our profession that we don't really enjoy conflict with each other. Um, which is funny, because as genetic counselors, we do a lot of, you know, confrontation in our counseling, and it's really just this idea of having conflict with others within your community that seems to be really, um, really not welcome, Um, at, at least within NSGC.
0: Yeah, I think it's true. It's actually one of the things that makes, ironically, it's one of the things that makes it such a wonderful profession to be in, is that surrounded by a lot of people who are mostly really nice, really care about your feelings and really want to know, you know, what they can do to help. Um, A lot of those, it's just, I think your post was saying, that's great, but sometimes that's not effective.
1: Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Um, And it's, it's not effective when we have these bigger issues that, you know, it's not something that we can just turn away from and say, well, we don't really want to have conflict. And I think part of that is that we know that there are people in our profession who don't agree and that's fine. Um, and, you know, people are allowed to believe what they believe. That's, you know, it's not NSGC's place to say everybody who is part of this profession needs to be pro-abortion. Um, it's just that as a profession, supporting our patients and our members Ability to access abortion is really important. And that's different than saying everyone needs to agree with it
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I would say to a student, you know um, Know and understand what your private beliefs are You have every right to them Um, The only thing we ask is that in the prenatal setting you're willing to support Whatever the decision is of the person across the desk from you or in the other chair don't I don't want to presume I don't want to be desk presumptive that's probably a (laughs) violation of some some code yeah and so this is all for me a fascinating conversation subject I just you know sort of stunned to find ourselves here where it's not a hypothetical like what if you know sort of doomsday conversation about the handmaid's tale, but instead actually we're discussing the 2021 Supreme Court calendar. Um, So I think what what would be useful to talk a little bit about both what individuals can do and what NSGC can do, Uh, NSGC has established, as we've mentioned, and Jordan's on it, a task force that will be looking at uh, a number of things, which I think will be Enabling people to get involved at the local level, because these these laws are first passed, obviously, at the local level. So we need to step in there and explain to people, well, for instance, could have explained to people in Arizona the risk you put people at when you basically say to patients, don't tell your medical providers about your plans or your concerns because they won't be able to help you. And in fact, you'll put them in a position where they can be in legal jeopardy uh, because the law in other places based on bioethical principles bends over backwards to make sure that in, unless somebody else's life is at stake, that, that we want good communication between patients and their medical providers. We want people to feel safe in that. We want to be able to tell Say what what they feel, where they are, what they're going to do. We don't we don't want to shut off those lines of communication. Uh, and maybe we could have made an inroad at least in that piece of the legislation. But um, so I'm drifting away. So what could NSGC do? The task force theoretically could align itself with other organizations like um, ACOG or the AMA, potentially larger organizations that might also feel that they find these laws threatening. And um, I would suggest to you, Jordan, since you're on the task force and I'm not, that you look at uh, hiring a lawyer to help us craft a generic amicus brief that could be shaped to a, an individual situation um, when it comes up to work with other organizations to state in court the ways in which what's presented about medical care situations is incorrect. For instance, the Ohio judge said one of the reasons why they allowed the law to go into force is that it wouldn't stop anyone from getting an abortion actually because that person who theoretically a second trimester uh, um, prenatal patient who's gotten a diagnosis of Down syndrome could just go to a different clinic and not tell them why. So you're in Ohio. Um, How realistic do you think that is?
1: I do not think it's realistic. I think um you know what what we have to think about beyond even just state legislation is, is local legislation. And that's where a lot of these even stronger restrictions are being put into place, specifically in Ohio. There is a recent um piece of legislation that went through in Lebanon, Ohio. Um, but really restricting people's access to abortion clinics people receiving help and getting to and from abortion clinics, those clinics, those working there. Um, So, you know, on top of this, you know, very um, coordinated effort to attack the reasons why people get abortions in the first place, there's this underlying, um, very choreographed uh, and, unfortunately, they're getting it done, but very choreographed effort to restrict access to abortion by limiting abortion clinics from operating. Um, So, sure, you can say that someone who has a diagnosis of, um, whose pregnancy has a diagnosis of Down syndrome could go to a different clinic in Ohio and say, not tell that provider that, that they know that information. Um, or that they suspect that information because the the law in Ohio actually says confirmed or suspected, which is um, kind of another issue. But uh, the the larger problem is that all of these clinics are already struggling to operate now. Um, So there's kind of two things going on um, and it may, it sounds easy to tell someone to go to another clinic to get that abortion. But if there is no other clinic, then they don't have that option.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's the situation in many of the states. I think Ohio is actually far and away not the worst one um, compared to Mississippi or Arkansas or North Dakota and South Dakota and so on, um, where there's barely any abortion available in the state and services may be hours and hours away and so on. So some of the things that NSGC could do as an organization, should it choose to do so, should it choose to align itself with other organizations also interested in doing so, would be to present evidence in court uh, explaining, just sort of giving factual statements about the ways in which the information presented to the courts in these cases is not an accurate reflection of the world as it actually is, and, and causes a problem. Without getting into the discussion of whether these are, let's say, ridiculous, unfair uh, laws that restrict people's autonomy and individual... No, okay, we're not philosophers, so we can't speak that way. That's sort of what NSGC is saying all along. But the organization can talk about difficulties in access and the need for professionals to schedule and the practice guidelines that say... We don't pressure people to have an abortion uh, if they don't want an abortion, and so on. So there's lots of sort of fact-based ways in which NSGC could get involved in having a say in a way that, as Jordan pointed out right in the beginning, is not available to an individual. So frustrating as it is, we kind of have to work through the organization for some of these if they're going to happen. But let's face some facts here: reason bans, no reason bans, whatever. Come next spring. Uh, abortion is going to be much access is going to be much more restricted in large swaths of the United States. That's something that's just coming down the pike and we need to face it right now. And you know, I'd really like to reach out. I've never really done this, but I'd like to encourage any prenatal counselors who are listening to this and who perhaps work in those states where they're anticipating having these problems. Like, I'd like to hear back from you. You can you can you can get my email. There's an email on the website where you can reach us. And I would be happy to go on and have future shows or bring out those voices of people that are actually working in those situations. And what are you worried about? Or, or, or what do you need? I mean, I'm thinking, is there a way to create, you know, so one of the reasons why access will be better for people with means and education than those without is, is, is simply that, It's hard and complicated and expensive. And I know there are organizations that will help people who don't have funds pay for abortions and even for travel and so on. But maybe one thing we need to start thinking about is can we put together sort of a a single website or a phone line or access point um, that we can offer people uh, to get in touch with individuals that will help them in other states, if their state is a no abortion state.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things that we were trying to do with Genuine. Um, is, so why don't you say what Genuine is? So Genuine is a group that we um, started to, um, to, to kind of be a home for people who have similar thoughts <laughs> about reproductive rights and abortion access. Um, and it, The goal is to provide a space for advocacy outside of NSGC, but also in a way where we have strength in numbers. Um, So it's open to all genetics professionals. um, And and the goal of the collective is really just to um, use our collective voice um, and be loud about these issues and try to put pressure on other organizations like NSGC this is really important. Um, and this is something that we need, that we have something unique to say about, and that we need to say it. Um, and to kind of show, to visualize that there are a lot of genetic counselors who do feel this way. It's not just, you know, me writing a blog post.
0: No, absolutely isn't. I mean, we've heard it, right? I mean, you saw the reaction. How many comments were there in reaction to your to your post? Or. I'm not sure. It was a lot. I'm not going back to check right now, but it was, <laughs> it was far more than our typical thing. And, and some of them were took out, took exception to some of the things you said, but most of them were supportive and a lot of them were panicky, nervous, agitated. How am I going to practice effectively? How am I, how am I going to be able to do my job in this situation? And, and yeah, I think that we need to do more than constantly react to things that have sort of already happened. right? And if you believe that, uh, that abortion following a diagnosis uh, that results from prenatal testing is illegal, why do the prenatal testing? And so this raises some interesting questions alone, because I expect that they will continue to attack that. And just as in many, many states in the country right now, about half the states in the country, uh, state Medicaid and everywhere. Federal Medicaid won't pay for abortions. I would not be surprised if the next thing that comes down the pike is uh, attempts to make sure that state Medicaid and federal Medicaid in a lot of areas, federal Medicaid everywhere and state Medicaid, don't pay for prenatal testing, which really will create a two-tier system of genetic medicine in this country. One for people who can who live in different states or can pay out of pocket and yeah. one for one for those who don't and a part of the answer there, which is really interesting for me when I think about this, is to make an airtight case that prenatal testing is not just about access to abortion, but I feel guilty about doing that because while it's effective it's the most effective thing we could do to make sure that that doesn't happen. it also is like just what I was saying before, where it's like saying like, oh, no, we're not going to use this for abortion. I'm like, I mean, what we do, where the case I want to make is people should have that option.
1: Right. Like, I don't in any way think that I am just one person writing a blog post. And I, I didn't think that going into it, but I wasn't. 100% sure, but the amount of support and um, positive statements after that came out really cemented that this is something that we as a community really care about. Um, And maybe, you know, that is not being reflected in some of the decisions that are being made by the organization. Um, But I will say that it hasn't all been positive, particularly from NSGC. And I think that's what's been Hard is kind of figuring out how to keep going within this organization when there is this constant battle of, um, you know, being the troublemaker. Um, and um, you know, I got it you is
0: covered, Jordan.
1: I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll say like when I submitted this to Perspectives, the um, the the conversation after I submitted it started with. You know, we can tell that you really care about abortion because you had one, um, which is probably the most dismissive, dismissive, thing to say and also just totally misses the point of the entire article. Um, but I think that's probably actually how they were feeling, um, and kind of the lens that they were looking at it through, that this is an emotional thing and that I was emotional about it. Um, and that's like
0: shades of hysterical women, you know, from the 19th century, like, oh my God, you can't be trusted on this issue because you have a uterus.
1: Yeah. Which is weird when it's coming from other women. (laughs) Um, but you know, it's, I think it makes it makes people, it's its tiring. It's tiring to be within the organization and continuing to, you know, raise your voice and feel like your hand's being slapped for doing that. Um, so I think, you know, we need to continue to show that this is something that not just a few people feel passionate about. This is not just the people who had abortions who care about this issue. It's our the, the majority of practicing genetic counselors. Um, and I think if we can... Illustrate that that gives us a lot more power to say that we should be doing something as an organization to to advocate for this.
0: It's a great point, Jordan, and we are definitely like well over time. So I just want to end saying saying one thing. The, yesterday, like probably many other people, I got in my inbox the, um, I forget what they called it exactly. The the social justice position statement. Fine words fine words, excellent words, but it's just a bunch of words. It's just a bunch of words, NSGC. This is a social justice issue. That's what this is. I recently did a project which involved interviewing the parents of children with Down syndrome, trying to access that group, got in touch with a group called the Down Syndrome Diagnostic Network, which which tends to uh, be a first-step for families that just found out about a diagnosis or just had a child with Down syndrome. So they see a lot of sort of like the younger, skewing younger. And um, the woman who's the head of it, we got in a long conversation and she said to me, the thing that's incredible to me is in the last five years, suddenly it feels like all of our new members are people of color. And I don't have any statistics on that. But it sent a chill down my spine because I've been talking about this for really I've been talking about this for 20 years. But listen, think about it. If we restrict who can get abortions, the natural consequence down the road is exactly what she was just identifying there. Um, So it's very nice to make a statement about social justice and so on. But social justice in the world is, I'm going to use Jordan's word, intersectional. And it's not just a matter of what, going up to somebody in the street and saying, I support you, I'm an ally. This is this is a social justice issue for everybody. and It has tremendous implications for the entire practice of genetics, for who our patients are, who has genetic illnesses. I mean, this is a period of time when what we can test for, it's very soon going to get away from this issue of Down syndrome, which thank goodness, because Down syndrome is not at all one of the terrible things that can happen, right? So so there are lots of other things, and all of them are, are going to happen only in certain populations and not in others if we don't get a handle on access to prenatal testing, to carrier screening, and yes, to abortion.
1: Yeah. And I would argue that as genetic counselors, we have an obligation (laughs) to not just talk and to take action for things that affect our patients and ourselves. Um, And, you know, if you look at our code of ethics, you could. String together some of that so that, you know, it, it is an obligation as genetic counselors that we use our position and our expertise in a way that supports our patients and advocates for them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think you're exactly right. I think this is, this is a social justice issue. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's far, far more far reaching than, um, you know, just a hot political topic to talk about. It's something that has direct impacts on many people's lives and not talking about it does a lot of harm.
0: Jordan, so well put. I definitely have to give you the last word on that. Thank you all for listening to us today. Please take me seriously. I want to hear your feedback. Uh, Go to the website, email me from there. Tell me your experiences, your thoughts, your criticisms, all of it. I'll do another show if there's a response where I bring forward those voices. So for today, pleasure doing business with you, Jordan.
1: All right. Bye.